Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. For today's conversation, we spoke with Terrell Givens to have him address some of the feedback about All Things New, which was written by Terrell and his wife Fiona and published by Faith Matters late last year. The book has received a remarkable amount of positive attention since it was published, and we've been delighted to see that it's resonated with so many people. Of course, hand in hand with that attention, there's been some pushback on some of the ideas put forth in the book, or maybe in some cases, pushback against the perceived implications in the book. So for this conversation, we took some of those concerns and posed them to Terrell. We think it was a really illuminating exploration of the book's main ideas and was helpful to hear what and whom he and Fiona were trying to address. Overall, we thought it was fascinating and Terrell was as articulate, well-versed, and insightful as always. We hope that you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Well, Terrell, how are you? I'm good. 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 Good to be here with you both. Yes. I think this is the first time we've been in studio together. With you, yeah. Uh, maybe, yeah. We have so. been with you in person many times, but it's an yeah. honor to be here with you. Yeah, well, likewise. Um, I hear that you've had a busy uh, busy summer, uh, busy busy going into the fall as well. Uh, yeah, it hasn't let up, um, both professionally and personally, which is why Fiona isn't here with me. She's actually helping to tend new twins in Guam. Oh, wow. Uh, as we speak. Very exciting. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I, I, one of the reasons, well, we've been wanting to have this episode of the podcast for for quite some time. When we released, uh, when Faith Matters published this book um, at the end of last year, it I think surpassed all expectations in terms of the interest that it that it drew, um, how much it resonated with, how much it resonated with so many members of the church. Um, what we wanted to do with this episode, obviously, and with interest often comes pushback, right? Well, uh, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're doing more than just mouthing platitudes and cliches, then you're going to provoke some conversations. So that's what we hope to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have, uh, for today's episode, uh, we want to go through some of those, uh, you know, some of those common items of, of pushback that, that we've heard and discuss, you know, and I think many of them raise excellent points. Um, and so we want to go through that. But for those listeners that have not yet read the book or, you know, not listened to you talk about it yet, could you, could you maybe describe some of the work that the book does, why it came into existence and why in your mind it has, it has resonated? Okay. Uh, I, I think the book, uh, could be seen as is the consequence of a kind of perfect storm of different factors and trends. Um, some of them are purely sociological. Um, the World Health Organization, for example, has indicated that the most pervasive pandemic in the world today is, is not COVID. It's depression. Uh, other studies have shown that one out of three women have been sexually assaulted. Uh, and that's, that's just their best estimates of reported incidents. Um, my personal interactions with mission presidents and uh, mission counselors, and this is, of course, completely unofficial, uh, just anecdotal, is that uh, scrupulosity is endemic among missionaries, and scrupulosity is defined not as just uh, a concern to be faithful. It's defined as a pathology, as a variety 
of obsessive compulsive disorder, where one is paralyzed by feelings of unworthiness and inadequacy. So it seems that in every direction that you look, in terms of, as I said, our, our society and our culture, there's this pandemic of feelings of uh, guilt and um, just burdens of the impossibility of compliance with the expectations that we impose upon ourselves and that we feel coming from the gospel. So that's from one direction. From the other direction, uh, I think it's... Uh, immediately evident to anybody who either listens attentively at General Conference or who has gone to the trouble of actually doing systematic word searches, that the vocabulary has undergone uh, a dramatic shift in our generation. For example, um, if you just look for the word healing, it turns out that in all of the 20th century, my research assistants could only find 10 instances of Christ as a healer. In the last decade, just the last... In general, in, in general conference? In or? general conference, okay. right, addresses. Mm -hmm. In just the last decade, there have been literally dozens of, of references. That's amazing. We have, uh, it seems to me, a tidal wave uh, of reconfiguration, rearticulation of key gospel tenets that don't change any foundational doctrines or principles, but that change the tone in the context and the language in a way that, that speaks to this generation as we believe living prophets should. Elders Bednar and Gong and Ballard and Holland and Nelson and Renland all have made use of the concept of, of healing. President Nelson has said some uh, pretty astonishing things, for example. He said, too many people consider repentance as punishment. This feeling of being penalized is engendered by Satan. I think that bears repeating. <laughs> to conceive of the consequences of our poor choices or those of others as being penalized is engendered by Satan. Uh, Elder Bednar has said we should consider sin as a spiritual wound. Elder Renland has spoken extensively uh, about the metaphor of woundedness uh, and disease as an apt a characterization of the consequences of sin. I think that we find that the New Testament roots of that in, in Luke chapter 7, when the woman who had sinned much is healed by the Savior. So what we have tried to do in this book is to take stock of some of these shifts and at the same time to perform a kind of diagnosis of where our vocabulary has been, we think, unduly influenced as a culture by our Protestant heritage. And so the first half of the book is a kind of historical and etymological excavation of the language of the gospel. Where did it come from? To what extent was it shaped by reformer translators? To what extent was it uh, in the air, in the climate, in Joseph Smith's day? And to try to provide, as I said, both a historical basis in that direction and a doctrinal basis by appealing to the words of contemporary prophets and apostles to suggest that as a culture, we can engage in a language that is more helpful and constructive uh, while still being absolutely true to the fundamentals of the gospel. So my, my big question <laughs> I love this new, like, re reconstructed God, this way of understanding a really, like, loving parental 
not wrathful, not angry Old Testament God in that, that you kind of describe in the book. But what I worried about is I know I am a product of my time. And, and so is it possible that we are just recreating God in our own image again? Because this is the era of love and self-acceptance and therapy. And, you know, are, is this just what I want God to look like now because I was born in 1985? Yeah, well, I think that's always the danger, right? And, and even our modern scriptures warn us about the tendency to make God into an idol after our own image. And it seems to me the only hedge against that is to try to find uh, a common series of threads, a common series of teachings in the voice of the quorum as a totality, which is what Fiona and I always try to use as a reference point, but also to put particular emphasis on Joseph Smith's revisions to the Bible that he said, quote, in many cases is not in accordance with the revelations of the Holy Spirit to me. Uh, the Book of Mormon tells us a dozen times that plain and precious things have been taken out. So it seems that we have not just been permitted, but in fact, we have been encouraged and even commanded to filter the scriptures through the prism of contemporary and, and modern revelation. And so uh, that's what we try to do. And, and we use as one of our lodestars, of course, Moses chapter 7, where we think uh, effectively, I'm not saying this is what literally happened, but it's as if in his work of revising the Bible, Joseph very early on got to a point where he saw that it needed more than um, just redecorating and, and touch-ups. And so he gets this stream of revelation called the Prophecy of Enoch, in which we have an absolutely unprecedented account of an encounter between God as the weeping God and his prophet Enoch. And so we think it's clear that the scriptures at times speak with discordant voices. I mean, there is nobody except an absolutely ardent uh, fundamentalist who would deny that. And so it's clear that some scriptures, at least it's clear to, me, to, to Fiona and me, that some scriptures are meant to have more authority and, and valence and weight with Latter-day Saints because they come through a modern prophet in a modern era. And so I would put Moses 7 there. And so I think that um, the, the danger, the temptation that seems to be historically recurrent is to swing from one pole to the other. And I think this is... Uh, responsible for some of the unease on the part of, of some readers of the book. And, and here's what I mean more particularly. Um, God's love, God's purported love, has been invoked to justify every atrocity and enormity in the history of Christianity. When good Christian people were tying men and women to stakes and burning them alive. They were doing it explicitly in the name of love, in the name of God's love. When they launched the Crusades, it was in the name of God's love. When the religious wars broke out across Europe, it was in the name of God's love. So clearly, God's love has been perverted and distorted in horrific ways to justify any number of evils. As a consequence... One way of reacting to that is to redefine love as absolute permissiveness. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Fiona and I repudiate this tradition of a, of a twisted, perverse love does not mean that we're falling 
into the opposite camp of saying, no, love means to do whatever a person wants to do. Um, I'm, I'm struck, for example, by the memory of a, of a close person who rejected or abandoned the gospel and its standards and engaged in a life radically at odds with restoration values and said to me, why can't you be happy for me? Because I'm happy. And I said, because I believe, as the great theologian Dietrich von Hildebrandt did, that the valid question isn't, are you happy? The real question should be, do you have legitimate grounds to, to feel happy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, and I, I think that's a line that Fiona and I hold without exception and without compromise, mm. is that we believe that God knows what are the legitimate bases for nurturing human happiness. So we look to the gospel for our standards of what are the parameters and the foundations on which a life of thriving and fulfillment and happiness can be built. So by no means do we mean or do we anywhere suggest or intimate that there is no sin. In fact, on our, in our chapter on sin, we say quite clearly and quite emphatically, sin is real. We are all capable of sin. There's never a moment when we aren't capable of choosing we're simply suggesting that the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of a kind of unqualified, penal, uh, punitive, angry, kind of retributive model of our relationship to God and his justice. That makes perfect sense. So you're, really, you're not saying that these words should be replaced, that we should stop using sin and salvation. This is, this is about a pendulum swing. This is that we, we've erred too far on one side. I'm very grateful that you have asked that question and that you have asked it precisely like that, because um, it, it is in fact the case that, that we have at times been wildly misrepresented in print as saying that there is no sin and there's no role for guilt. That uh, couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, the whole book is predicated on our belief that these words matter, that they are real, that they are essentials in the gospel, but that we have not been listening to the brethren as they try to give them a meaning, a valence that is distinctively different from the Protestant world because it is framed with a restoration understanding of the plan of happiness, of our pre-mortal lives, of God as a heavenly mother and father. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, no, we, we emphatically reaffirm the, those core principles of the gospel, uh, but we think we just haven't as a people, as a culture, we haven't fully appreciated how distinctively different those words should be for us. And we think that that's the message we're getting from the brethren as well. Right. In terms of, uh, in terms of punishment, I've, I think we've seen some readers take away that they, they believe that you're saying that there is, no, there is no punishment from God beyond the natural consequences of of our sins. Uh, well, I, I guess, you know, again, my, my standard, the, the litmus test, the criterion by which I would try to understand what God is doing, how he is acting, what his motives are, is to take literally uh, our foundational gospel principle that God is our parent. And Elder Holland has said in, in just very recent years that uh, one of the two foundational pillars of the Christian tradition is the parental nature of God. And so I, I guess I would ask the question, 
how and why and for what reasons do you punish your children? Is it ever strictly retributive? Is it ever done mm. in anger? Is it ever done just in the name of justice? Uh, well, I, I guess it would be the case if you're an abusive parent, but it seems to me that most of the time I am trying to warn my children against the natural consequences of misbehavior and acting outside of gospel parameters. And insofar as a consequence does follow, if it isn't natural, then its intent is educative and disciplinary. So I do believe that God can educate us and discipline us. But I don't believe it's the case, and I don't believe it's taught in the Book of Mormon. Uh, when, when we are taught in great detail about what, what is called the Law of Restoration, which is the fuller, ampler explication that the Book of Mormon gives to the principle of justice, uh, that it's ever retributive, that it's ever punitive. I think some readers have uh, taken that argument and then sort of pushed it to its logical extreme and said, well, what about situations in which people act intentionally harmfully, or in some cases, with, even with depravity? And we're talking about that, that kind of sin now. Would, is, and, and they want to believe in a God and I think, you know, th this could be justified that does take retribution uh, or act purely punitively sometimes in, in, those, in those exceptional cases where horrific acts are, are committed. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I guess, you know, no book can be written to everyone or right. for everyone. And we try to lay out, and I think we do lay out pretty clearly and pretty explicitly in our opening pages who our principal audience is and what our motives are. And we begin by rehearsing not the dilemmas of child rapists and serial killers. We begin by limiting the, the prevalence of striving members of the church, trying to live the covenant path, who, are, who just can't escape these feelings right. of an angry, vengeful God and of their own inadequacies. That's our audience. Right. You're, in, you're addressing not the child rapists and serial killers, but the missionaries with scrupulosity. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so, you know, I leave it to others to write books directed at, at the hardcore criminals. As I said, we do, we do make explicit, emphatic recognition of the fact that sin is real and some of us choose to sin, that none of us are ever utterly deprived of the capacity for choice. So we, right, kind of in that aside is implicitly dealt with all of those hard cases that are not our immediate concern. Uh, so that's that's just not part of our project. Could we could we get into that a little bit? And this is maybe my one piece of of pushback that's coming <laughs> from me personally. I and it's it's actually not pushback against the book at all. It's a it's a theological issue that I've had for a long time, which is I cannot logic my way into free will and agency at all. I feel like I have it. I feel like I'm choosing to do things. But the more I learn about uh, you know my own biological evolution and chemistry. I understand my own, you know, states of mental health. Um, or even if I go all the way back doctrinally and say, you know, who was I at the foundation of the world or who was I eternally in the past? And how is that dictating the choices that I make right now? I start to question if I am actually making choices or if something predetermined about, about who I am for whatever reason as far back as you want to go, is essentially making those choices yeah. for me. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the great and enduring questions at the heart of all theology and philosophy is to what extent, if any, do we actually exercise agency over our own choices? 
I think that the Latter-day Saints have a unique uh, template for making some sense of this. I've only heard it addressed directly in a general conference once, and that was in the early 20th century by uh, a 70 whose name I can't even recall now. But he propounded his understanding that a third of our character is probably shaped by our pre-mortal life and however many eons we spent there. (laughs) We obviously were educated and grew and were nurtured. That has to count for something. So we're not born as a, as a blank slate. So we come to earth with a character. But a third of that personality is probably shaped genetically. Um, uh, we know, right, the extent to which characteristics and traits are inherited directly, biologically. And as social science uh, has abundant proof uh to, to point to the third uh, part of this equation, which is environment, peers. So I think we're all a complex mixture, mixture of, of all of those things. I think that, again, one of the significant developments in uh, doctrinal pronouncements from the leadership have occurred in the area of, of the LGBT issue. And here we can see, and, if, and, and we could take this as in many ways emblematic of a general recognition, because what has happened in the shift of the way that we, our leadership talks about LGBT uh, orientation? Well, in the past, it was always a choice. It was, you're not born that way. It's you're fully accountable. Now there's an official, explicit, repeated recognition that there is most likely a genetic component to this. So suddenly, what we're learning is we are not as free as we thought we were to choose for example, our own sexual orientation. Well, it seems pretty obvious that one could extrapolate from that to a whole series of other behaviors in that. It turns out that we may be born with a genetic predisposition to to addiction, Uh, that we might be born with all kinds of latent neuroses and and, uh, predispositions. And so in some ways, it is true that the ideal of a pure, unfettered will has been diminished. It's been compromised, but it has not been annihilated, and I don't think it ever will be annihilated. And I I think, again, a mistake that some people might read into this discussion is to say, oh, well, you're excusing X, Y, or Z. Well, no, this conversation isn't to excuse anything. It's to illuminate the complexity and the difficulty of assigning blame and responsibility and degrees of blame and responsibility. Unfortunately, that's not my job. Uh, so that we, you know, we would never take it that far to excuse or exculpate any kind of, of behavior. It is to say that in assessing and analyzing our own behavior and our own conduct, we have good reason to be more forgiving and more generous with ourselves than maybe our cultural language has led us to be in the past. So in the, I, I, I'm just sort of, this is probably the main thesis of the book that I missed as I, as I read it, but it seems like what you're saying is as we, as we sort of recognize the extenuating circumstances, as you, as you put it in the book of all of our choices, um, and this sort of unfettered con- concept of agency is, is diminished somewhat correspondingly, the concepts of sin and salvation, uh, need to make room uh, need to make room for those concepts of of woundedness and healing. Sin and, sin and salvation then sort of addressing the pure unfettered agency and woundedness and healing addressing uh, addressing the parts of 
ourselves that our traumas that we received, you know, whether early on in our mortal lives or or elsewhere? Well, we didn't divide it up that way, but I think that's actually uh, an absolutely elegant way of, of kind of making a differentiation between those emphases. When, when Elder Bednar says, consider sin as a spiritual wound, right? He's not necessarily saying every sin committed by, you know, from Attila the Hun on, but he is suggesting that there is a space there that clearly we need to recognize and open and address that to some extent we sin as a consequence of or as a source of spiritual woundedness and you know, this, this, isn't, this isn't a new idea, this notion of Christ as a healer. The Old Testament is replete with the imagery of Christ coming with healing in his wings. And the fact that I think we as a culture are justified and that the brethren have good reason to be shifting this emphasis is because the Book of Mormon makes that shift explicitly, twice, in the resurrection scene of Christ among the Nephites. He drops an unexpected word into his language when he says, repent, come unto me that ye may be healed. doesn't say that ye may be saved. Mm -hmm. He says that ye may be healed. So the, the language of scripture is consistent throughout the Old and New Testament. We're suggesting not that Christ is not our Savior. Uh, in fact, this again is, is an occasional misrepresentation of our work. We would never suggest that Christ as Savior has no role in our language or our theology. We say explicitly on what is page 140, I think it is, we say we are trying to shift some of the emphasis so that we enlarge and we enrich our understanding of Christ and his role as healer. I, I love that. And it, it really resonates with me uh, that the quote from Christ among the Nephites, but the, uh, the, there's a part of me too that if I'm looking at it purely scripturally, wants to push back and say, well, let's go back a few chapters and look at the voice of the voice of Christ as it d descends to yeah. the Nephites yeah. and yeah. explicitly takes credit for uh, for destruction that words on a page, you know, it doesn't, maybe doesn't sound too bad. But if you imagine what was happening to men, women and children in those situations of uh of destruction among in their cities and in their communities, it's it, it could seem like a, an atrocity that God committed, and then takes explicit credit for it. It does, and and I certainly find those deeply troubling and deeply problematic. And I don't pretend to have a definitive explanation or resolution of those. I'm I'm troubled and unsettled. Uh, I do know that I find some relief in the words of the Lord to Joseph in section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where he very expressly says. Sometimes the language of Scripture is employed to work upon the hearts of the children of men. So he's there said, right, in black and white. There are times when Scripture isn't meant to be taken as literally as it's mm. given because it needs to have a particular kind of impact. If you consider the kind of people who are being described in those last scenes in Book of Mormon history, people who are sacrificing men, women, and children and cannibalizing them, people who are brutal and insensitive to all appeals to humanity. If you think that in our own human history, for the vast majority of our past, we have enslaved human beings. We have embarked on wars of conquest. We have massacred and annihilated people by the millions. We have... We have um, imposed upon and abused 
women through unfettered patriarchy. And yet we expect God to have spoken to those people in the same gentle and loving tones that, mm. that we hear from, you know, Jesus in the New Testament. It seems to me that we have to have just a little bit of historical consciousness here and sensitivity to the shifting audiences through time and the shifting needs of God to employ different kinds of imagery and language to reach different kinds of hearts. Mm. <clears throat> That's really, that's a, I, that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Um, I wonder when, when you were talking about just how messy it gets, like woundedness versus, versus actual agency, what, what kept coming to mind is that I, I feel like a lot of readers felt conflicted because they, they want to know if they are allowed to also inflict punishment for sins. And so I, and, and I think it's really, it is really coming from a place of love that they are afraid they will accidentally love someone into a, a spiritual death. So could you address yeah, yeah. our role, knowing that this is, you know, if this is, if this is the paradigm, if this is how we work personally, then what is our role as a parent and a friend to people who, who are living messy, yeah, messy, complicated, yeah, yeah, wounded, and yeah. maybe sinful lives? Well, one of my go-to scriptures here comes from a, a secular prophet. His name was William Blake. And I thought he gave some of the best advice on parenting I've ever read. He said, the same law for the ox and for the lion is oppression. Mm. Wow. Uh, in other words, he was saying that, that our response to any given human choice or action has to be radically individualized. And so I don't think there is a kind of blanket principle to employ here, uh, except to revert to the point that I, I made a few minutes ago that I think bears re-emphasis. And that is that the way I define, define love is to actively work for the good of the other. Now, the difficulty comes in knowing, well, what is the good right. of that individual? And that's where I think we have to know how to apply eternal principles in any particular situation or context. Uh, there's nothing in, in that philosophy that would ever advocate a kind of unfettered permissiveness that, oh, well, whatever you think makes you happy is what I will indulge, right? I've had relatives that were, were drug addicts and uh, love would certainly not have been manifest by giving them the fix that they wanted and needed and knew would make them happy mm -hmm. at, at that moment. So, as I said, I, I, I think the fact that we have this stable frame of reference, that there are certain non-negotiable principles that are foundational to our eternal thriving. Those are principles of sexual fidelity and of kindness and goodness and purity and virtue and all of the, all of the, all of the principles enumerated in the scriptures. And uh, whatever we do that conduces in that direction and helps our children move in that direction seems to me as an act of love. It's just so hard. It's just so hard to to judge what what is going to be for the long term good of the other. I think that's you know, I, you know becoming as an example becoming less common, um, but like that's probably behind a lot of the parents over the years who have who have kicked out their LGBTQ children Absolutely. who came out to them. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like oh, we'll we'll you know, it was love. Yeah, <clears throat> it was it love. Was, I mean, they're going to come to their senses their because good, they don't have they a think. you know they don't have a home anymore, and then they'll yeah you know yeah. and so it's like. I don't even, I don't trust myself necessarily to make those, to make those determinations. Right. Do you have advice? I guess. I, I don't except, you know, there's this, there's this wonderful moment when Elie Wiesel is, is writing one of his most, um, 
It, well, it's one of his most brutally expository works, which is um, the the, God, the trial of God, and he's writing this in the aftermath of, of Auschwitz, and he's trying to make sense of God's justice, and. The argument is put forth by one of the characters that, well, we, we don't know what God's justice is. He has a different perspective and he may see it differently. And then Elie Wiesel's character makes this statement, which just kind of rocked my world the first time I read it. He said, if God does not inhabit the same moral universe that we do, then what's the use of any of this? So it seems to me that at our best we are emulating God's virtues and God's justice would be a reflection of our justice at its best and most sublime and most inspired and most selfless. And, you know, we're all captives of our culture, right? Yes. I think if we all recognize that to a greater degree, we'd be less judgmental about the past, we'd be less presentist, we'd be more generous with ourselves, and we'd realize our own limitations in a way that you're experiencing and feeling and say there just isn't any way to step outside of our moment and culture and history and see things in a completely pure and unfiltered way. And so we do the best we can. I remember President Kimball, who was my most beloved prophet, talking just casually in a conference, just nonchalantly. He mentions this case where he had done something wrong and his, his, his I don't remember, his mother or father says, okay, go out and you pick the hickory switch and then you come back and I'm going to whip you with it. <laughs> and right now that would be abusive. There was nothing abusive about that. It was a different environment, a different paradigm, and they're going to continue to shift. We haven't reached the end of history. Our grandchildren are going to be far better parents if they're true to the gospel than we were. And we just, we just struggle on. Yeah. Well, it makes me just, I'm thinking just in the New Testament, you know, we, it feels like if it, if it was important for us to be able to sort out who was what and what they needed, then we'd hear a lot more of that in the New Testament. And what we hear over and over in the New Testament is stop, don't judge. Like you can't, you can't judge. Like you're just not going to know. And that, and that love seems to be always the, the, the correct answer. Yes, and this is why, and I think this is just one of the most beautiful insights of my wife, Fiona. Uh, she was the first to recognize that, that, look, here's what's at stake in thinking of somebody as wounded rather than thinking of somebody as sinful. Right? If you think of somebody as sinful, there's an immediate reaction against, there's immediate condescension, there's a, an immediate tendency to evade. If you move into war, and somebody tells you that person is deeply wounded, there's an innate inclination to minister and to heal. So I have to ask, what is at stake in the desires of some people to insist that they want to maintain the language of sin and punishment mm -hmm. and retribution? It just seems to me that our Lord foresaw this and that he spoke emphatically and specifically about this when he gave the parable of the laborer in the vineyard. And he reproves the laborer at the end who said, those who were hired first expected to receive more. So I think that so many of us suffer from this Jonah. I call it the Jonah complex. We want to see Nineveh burn, mm -hmm. both because it will satisfy our thirst for vengeance, which we self delusionally call justice, but it's really about vengeance. 
And also because we want to feel like, doggone it, I got first place, not this schmuck who didn't do his home teaching. (laughs) And uh, and so the idea that eventually everybody might conceivably make it back to God's presence uh, was so infuriating and disanimating to many early saints that Parley Pratt had to take a special missionary journey to New York to excommunicate those who violently rejected Section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Because in the words of Brigham Young's brother, yeah, Brigham Young's brother described them. He said... He said their attitude was, well, heck, it looks like everybody's going to be saved. And wow. they got angry as a result. And I, I hear a lot of the same <clears throat> reactions today. Yeah. I don't know that everybody will be saved. I'm not an unqualified universalist. But I, I, I just think that if we are told to forgive 70 times 7, why would we assert that God is incapable of forgiving 7 times once? Um, and so, I, I, you know, I loved Elder Maxwell. Everybody loved Elder Maxwell. But one of his favorite many sermons for me was, nobody can perceive the hidden crosses that that mm-hmm. person next to you is bearing. And if we're going to err, can't we err on the side of generosity rather than on the side of rigor? Yeah. Um, so, and and isn't it interesting? I mean, I think I think you're totally right, and I think it's probably really indicative of our own woundedness when we we start recognizing what activates us, which sins and wounds of other people get us really agitated. You know, yeah, that probably yeah. is really revealing. Like, what is happening that bothers me so That's much so about this very specific? Yep, yep. Sin. The, the, the <laughs> Talmud says we do not see the world as it is; we see the world as we are. Oh, wow. And I think that's a perfect example of that. As you were speaking, Terrell, I was thinking that your point was illustrated almost perfectly by the woman caught in adultery with the Pharisees there ready to to cast stones or whoever it was. And and Jesus, you know, recognizing the woundedness. And I was sitting here as I was thinking about that, judging those who are ready to cast stones. And then when Aubrey started speaking, I was like, well, what's going on in there? You know, what's going on in their lives? Uh, yeah, yeah. What, what the brought the, the stone throwers? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. you know, let me offer a little more, a uh, little more grace to them. Yeah, yeah. I think we see that same kind of grace in <clears throat> the story of the rich young ruler in, in Mark ten, and I've always thought that it was just so brilliantly organized as a story by Mark, the writer, when the rich young ruler asks, you know, what, what, what do I need to do? Well, just keep all the commandments. Well, I've kept them all. What more do I need to do? And at that moment, Christ, beholding him, loved him. Mm. Then he says, well, sell everything you have. And the rich young ruler goes away sad. But it's that interposition in the midst of the story. It's like, no, Christ's love is already there before any judgment has taken place. And Mark wants us to know that. Yeah. I love that. When I finished the book, the, the next book I read was The Anatomy of Evil. <laughs> Because this was my, this was the problem. Like it just, it became like everything felt like it could be explained by woundedness. So, and I've heard, I've seen this question pop up a few times in reviews. You know, what about Satan? What about the, where do you, does this displace an idea of, of an outside evil, well, maybe, like a tempter in your ear? You maybe know? give the thesis of the anatomy of evil. So the, oh yeah. Hello. So, so this, this um, psychiatrist studies <clears throat> 600, just awful, awful crimes and criminals. And there's just not a single one that doesn't have either a a severe mental illness or traumatic brain injury or a horrific childhood. And it just, I mean, every single one, you just, your heart breaks for what they endured before they became an offender. 
Yeah. And it just... Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, I mean, that's kind of the thesis of Just Mercy, right? By yes. Stevenson, which was for me a kind of life-changing book and film. And there's no study that does not corroborate the fact that trauma is inherited and replicated generationally. Again, this is not to excuse, but it is to try to explain and to try to complicate the problem yeah. of guilt and responsibility. And again, insist why we are never in a position to make moral judgments uh, about any evil. Um, you know, I don't know if it's related directly or just obliquely, but I continue to be perplexed and, and uh, provoked by what I think was one of Joseph Smith's most enigmatic and interesting statements. He said, if you have no accuser, you will enter heaven. Mm-hmm. Now, think about how this flips everything on its head. He didn't say, if you are not guilty. Right. He said, if, if you have no accuser. So what that means, Tim, is that if you've offended me, now, if, if Joseph was right, <laughs> right, if you've offended me and don't even know it, or if you do know it and apologize, and I just say, no, that's not good enough. I can impede your <clears throat> salvation. Right. <laughs> How can that possibly be the case unless we radically rethink what salvation is, which is what the restoration does? And if it's about your imbrication in this vast web of relationships, then I've, I've tainted that. Your relationships aren't pure because I've delimited your interconnectedness to me and through me to others. So that seems to me that it imposes upon us this, this awe-inspiring, intimidating burden to forgive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, salvation is in the hands of each and every one of us. It's like, again, Elder Maxwell said, it's like, it's like we're all in a boat that's sinking. Mm-hmm. And we're all in it together. And if we don't all work to save each other, then none of us will will make it. So again, that's what I love about woundedness is because it indicates that there is this cooperative project of healing in which we all have to participate. I, I love and I, I try to live by the admonition in, in DNC 81 to succor the weak, to lift up the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. That's what Fiona and I are, are trying to do through a book like this, and uh, I'm sorry if it offends the ethical, philosophical world of, of, of some of our uh, philosophers. But uh, as I said, I think it is to participate in what I see is this, this call to engage in this universal work of healing to which, as I said, I have heard over half of the quorum call yeah. us by explicitly invoking the principle of healing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If we could, I, I would love to actually um, to address um, a little bit more the concept of the t- concept of guilt, which we've talked about tangentially here. Right. Um, I think we've re- we've you know seen some pushback uh, a little bit uh, from readers who believe that the book implies that guilt 
uh, guilt doesn't really play much of a of an important role. And they're saying, well, guilt really can be a motivator in the in the sort of work of of personal growth. Yeah. And I I wonder I, I could end the question there, but I almost wonder if there's almost just like a nomenclature issue here. Yeah, I think this yeah. is, this gets into semantics. You know, I just I I hate I. Just as a, as a basic principle, right? Just as a basic foundational principle, I would hope we could always read each other's works in a spirit of honesty and charity. Mm-hmm. Honesty means don't misquote. Right. And, and charity means impose on it a reading that you think the author intended. Mm-hmm. So I don't think any fair-minded person could infer from our work that we don't believe in guilt or that guilt has a role. What we are saying is that it might be healthier and, and more helpful if we discriminate between different kinds of feelings that we often just throw under the label of guilt. And so we're saying that if we think of guilt in the sense of remorse, it's a godly principle. It's a motivational principle because what it means is we feel bad because the consequences of our actions have been injurious, either to our heavenly parents or to those in our immediate vicinity. But if by guilt... We mean self-reproach because we let ourselves down and now don't have as good and noble a self-image as we had before. Then we're saying that that either veers toward pridefulness on the one hand or scrupulosity on the other. Mm-hmm. And that kind of guilt, we think, can be disabling. And um, again, we, we think that that's borne out scripturally and doctrinally, that there is a godly sorrow. And that's what we call remorse. If you want to call that guilt, then call it guilt. But but be aware of the fact that Elder Bednar has said in general conference that guilt functions like an athletic injury to warn us away from further harm and damage. And that's a sense in which, yes, we think that that kind of remorse can be ameliorative. It can be helpful. It can be educative. So it's a, it's a good thing. But Clearly, there's an epidemic mm-hmm. related to guilt that we think is is uh, is out of control yeah. and and unproductive. I really like that. That yeah. yeah, 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 counterproductive. I love the idea that just remorse is like an energy moving forward. It's like an outward energy, and you're moving and and making something better. Where guilt feels so disabling and yeah, you, yeah, it's yeah. it's counterproductive. It's yeah. like you can't even try as hard as you tried, you know, yeah, because yeah. or maybe that's what people are calling shame. But I, I that that definition was really useful for me. I really like that. Um, do you want to talk about individualism and just? I I think maybe this is sort of related to the the guilt question. Like, are we are we at risk then of having our all having our own little individual compasses for what feels good <laughs> and right, and and we can sort of redefine what feels energizing to us? And yeah, is that really yeah. a problem because we're, we've become unhinged from an unchanging morality? Yeah. Again, I think this comes back to audience. Uh, you know, we could have added a chapter, we could have written a book on rationalization, <clears throat> right? Uh, I love the fact that so many philosophers, cognitive psychologists, and evolutionary psychologists alike are all coming to the same consensus that the human brain did not evolve to find truth It evolved to win arguments. (laughs) And most of those arguments are with ourselves, and we call that rationalization. So there's no question that we have a propensity for rationalization. That's, you know, if, if if you're rationalizing at some level, you know you are. And that's, again, that's not our audience. Our audience is for 
those who we feel are the sincere strivers overburdened by an excessive baggage entailed by this Puritan ethic that our language still imposes on us Mm -hmm. and that Joseph Smith in section 123 referred to as a bond of chains that drag us down the very fetters of hell. So we're not, we're not inventing um, projects here. This is something that Joseph Smith said the restoration itself was engaged in trying to do. Um, Do, do we have, um, is there a danger of excessive individualism? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's endemic in our culture, this atomistic individualism. But here again is why I'm not as worried about it, maybe as some others are when it comes to, to members of the church. And that's because there's a crucial distinction that reflects this sickness, I think, in the opting of our generation for spirituality over religion. And I think that in in many, many cases, this quest for spirituality is delusional. It's self-justification. It's an excuse to not have to suffer through the boredom of another Sunday school class because you want to be fed yourself and you want to be animated and edified yourself. And I think what what Mormonism, what, what the church brings to the world is the inescapable nature of salvation as communal. Mm. So that, I think, is our culture's hedge against atomistic individualism. Is And, and I think we need to make a better job of explaining that to our young people. Uh, that, no, you don't come to Sunday school to be entertained. It's not a movie that you approve or disapprove of on, in terms of its entertainment value. Um, and it's, it's getting harder in the contemporary church because we don't do some of those things we used to, right? I can remember weeding potatoes on a church farm. I can remember as an eight-year-old sanding the walls of a new church building to get it ready for painting. Wow. Wow. So I remember going to, I remember the very first Mexican food I ate. We had just moved from New York to Arizona, and we didn't know if the tortilla was a napkin or part of a meal. <laughs> but it was a, it was a fundraising <laughs> church supper, and I can remember, you know, putting my pennies into this container in primary that was part of the ward building project. So, you know, that was just part of, we ate and breathed breathed community, uh, Mm. and we don't anymore in the church. And so, so yeah, that's, that's a concern. That's interesting though, because I feel like, I feel like outsiders see a very tight community. They see, they see us doing, you know, moving each other and doing funerals together and meeting every Sunday and then midweek. And so, but maybe that's just, you know, that's how our culture in general is becoming more separated. So we've, we've just kind of stayed in line, but I, I wonder if this push towards spiritualism, do you think this is just another case of the pendulum having been so far on, on being fed at church? You know, we, we showed up and we were, and and we did the community thing and people are recognizing this real like hunger for 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 something on the other side of the spectrum and we're just seeing this big swing and we, what we're really looking for is some sort of middle space yeah i think so yeah yeah no so i want to give credit there where credit is due i think i think in many cases there is a legitimate and admirable hunger on the part of our mm-hmm. young people to find more spiritual nourishment so i didn't mean to discount that um but uh, I, I, you know, it used to bother me, uh, it bothered me for a long time that our church has no contemplative tradition. Mm-hmm. We don't have any great mystics. We don't do retreats. And I still think that's a vacancy that could be filled. But I came to appreciate more and more that our spirituality is manifest in the doing. 
it's in those elders quorum moves and in those service projects and in the continual ministering to to each other um but clearly that isn't doesn't seem to be working doesn't seem to suffice for the hunger of our of our young people and i don't know where we need to go or where the brethren will direct us but i think that clearly is a need that uh that is manifest in one level by the the, the willingness of so many latter day saints to try meditation mm-hmm. and and uh mindfulness and those kinds of exercises because there there clearly is something deficient um i i think at least in my life, the only solution is just to assume more personal responsibility to find those sources of spirituality and not expect to find them in a Sunday school class. And I mean, and that's this book, right? I, I feel like if, if you take a step back, like that's what this book offered me. It was, it was here are things that I have discovered, per, or you have discovered personally that weren't working. And I'm, I'm working to figure out what feels more like God to me. And like, what a, what an awesome example of what we can do, you know, when we're not sitting at church on Sunday, like what, what feels off and in, instead of throwing it all away, you know, how, how is this off and what can I do? What can I bring from my own woundedness and life experience that helps feel this more, feel more in alignment with, with like, with what God really is? Yeah. Yeah. Revelation comes from the top down, um, in an institutional way, but culture comes from the bottom up and, uh, you know, all politics is local. We know that, but we tend to forget that all religion is ultimately local. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, so I often get the the, the question slash criticism. You know, certain kinds of people don't feel welcome in our church. And I want to say, in our church, or do you mean in your ward? Mm-hmm. And if it's your ward, then why aren't you the first one at the door, making this person feel welcome? So it's it's kind of like you know the age old problem of evil that we blame God for the. Holocaust and every other human manifestation of evil. Instead of saying, "Well, wait a minute, that was that was in our power to 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 shift the tides of history if we had so chosen." So I, I think that there's a lot more autonomy that we should take for you know responsibility for the spiritual character of the wards that we participate in. Yeah. Well, Terrell, thank you so much for doing this. First of all, is there is there anything that we missed? Anything in particular that you've heard that you want to address? Um, no, I, I guess I would just end. I'm, I'm reminded of Nephi's magnificent testimony at the end of his second book, where effectively he says, you don't have to believe anything I've said. <laughs> right. just, just believe in Christ. Yeah. <laughs> and so that would, that would be my concluding wish. Okay. That's great. Well, thank you, Terrell. Thank you Always so much. It. Thanks for the book. Thanks for the answers. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. And we really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Terrell. And if you're one of those listening to this who hasn't read the book, you can head over to Desert Book or Amazon to buy it in whatever format you prefer. And as always, if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. It really helps us to get the word out about Faith Matters, and we appreciate the support. Thanks again for listening, and remember you can check out more at faithmatters.org.